Revelation chapter 19 today. It doesn't uh, seem like it, but this is the 40th sermon from the book of Revelation in this series. For me, it seems as if it's gone by pretty quickly. 19, 20, 21. We're getting very, very close now to the end of the book. Our text this morning, verses 1 through 9 in chapter 19, it will be on the overhead. If you're able to stand for the reading of God's Word, please do. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For His judgments are true and just. For He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immortality, immorality and has avenged on her the blood of His servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen. Hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the word, the true words of God. The word of God, you may be seated. As we begin now in chapter 19, we need to do so with the understanding that what we have just read is the response, is the response to chapter 18, verse 20, in which the children of God are encouraged to rejoice over the destruction of Babylon. And in fact, I don't know how chapter 19 is headed in your Bible, but in mine, it says simply rejoicing in heaven. That's right. Rejoicing in heaven. Well, rejoicing in heaven for what reason? Over what? Well, again, it is the response to having been encouraged to rejoice over the destruction of Babylon. If you've been here or have been following on the web through our live stream, 
you'll know that Babylon is not representative of a literal place on earth, but it's rather this world's systems. Political, commerce, economic. Everything in this world that exalts itself against Christ, against the kingdom of God. And as we have seen as the days progress on earth, all of these systems perhaps originally intended for good, have become corrupt to the core. I think we'll all admit that the systems of this world are now corrupt to the core because they are. And that's what Babylon is. And so there is this encouragement in chapter 18, verse 20, for the saints of God to to rejoice over the destruction of Babylon. God's wrath with all of its sounds and all of its sights causes the heavenly host to burst forth in worship. And I think it's here at this point that those of us who are Christians in the 21st century need to ask ourselves a serious question. And that is this. Do we really understand the character of God? I think if you look at Christianity in the West in general, and particularly, I would say, in the U.S. of A. and in Europe, the vast majority of Christ-professing people do not have an adequate or right understanding of the character of God. Now there are some aspects of God's character that most all Christians have some concept and grasp of. For example, God is a God of grace. I don't know any Christian who doesn't understand at least to some level what grace is. That grace is getting from God what we don't deserve. And we understand that God is a gracious God. I think most Christ-professing people get that. God is merciful. And we understand, I think, that mercy means not getting what we do deserve from God. God withholding punishment. I think most Christ-professing people in America have some idea to some level of understanding that God is patient. He's long-suffering. That God is a forgiving God. That God takes no pleasure, no sinful pleasure in the destruction of wicked people. Now these are not God's eternal attributes, but these are nevertheless attributes of God which we see on full display. We know as Christian people that God makes it to rain on the just and the unjust. That God is good, but He's benevolent and good to all people everywhere. Right? Right? This is called common grace. But do we really understand the character of God? And I think we can answer this question by thinking on this. Are we horrified and do we recoil 
over the reality of God's wrath. If when we read of the wrath of God, we are horrified or recoil, or it automatically, instantly in our minds, causes us to think, well, is he saying God is mean? Then we lack understanding of the character of God. This we know for sure, based upon our text today. The saints in heaven understand His character. They get it. They're not horrified at His wrath. They don't recoil at the sight and sounds of the wrath of God. And the reason they do not is because God's judgment signals the complete triumph of Jesus. Amen. Let me say that again. God's judgment signals the complete triumph of Jesus. Amen. The destruction of Babylon and of the beast and of the false prophet is proof, proof that God is ruler of the universe. If Babylon be not judged and destroyed, if this world's systems are not judged and ultimately destroyed, if the beast and the false prophet are not judged and destroyed, then God is not the ruler of this universe. But He is the ruler of this universe. I have people frequently these days because I think, listen, most of us, and not, I'm not just speaking of the people in this room, I'm speaking of people in general, are very concerned about things they see going on in this world. Would you agree with that? Yeah. Things that we see going on right here in our own country. I mean, we've never, ever, I don't think, ever been more divided as a country than we are now. Not since the war between the states, not since the Civil War has America been so divided. And so I have people ask me, I had just someone ask me, not this past week, because we were in Texas with the grandchildren, but the week before, in a store, do you do you think God is judging America? And without hesitation, my response was absolutely. Absolutely. We are under the judgment of God as a nation. And I, I think it's clear from Scripture. that we as a country are under the judgment of God. We've turned our back on God at every turn as a society. Now, is God still blessing His children 
Is God still saving souls? Is God still blessing His church when, they, when the church is faithful to Him? Absolutely. Is God still gracious? Yes. Because if He weren't, He'd have destroyed us a long time ago. Is God merciful? You better believe it. Nevertheless, America is under the judgment of God. Our institutions are crumbling from the foundation. Doesn't mean that we're without hope. Because all who are in Christ have eternal hope. But we better not be placing our hope in the things of America. And therein lies one of the major problems of American Christians. I'm not saying you in particular, but how many Americans have a greater allegiance to America than they do to God? America's not the answer Amen. for you or for me. Not if we're children of God. The answer is Jesus Christ and His eternal kingdom. Amen. God is the ruler of the universe. Thanks be to God. And chapter 19, if we can call it this, is the biblical hallelujah chorus. You know, there, there's, there's a, a, a choral piece called the hallelujah chorus by uh, Handel, I think it's Handel's Messiah, right? Handel's Messiah. And, and a part of it's called the Hallelujah Chorus. If you've ever heard it, it's one of the most difficult pieces of choral music to sing. And I've been blessed to sing in a choir that had the ability to do it, and it was glorious. It's beautiful. It's awesome. But this is the biblical Hallelujah Chorus. Right here in chapter 19. Now, if you're taking notes... You need to write this down because this is astounding, I think. Right here in these verses in chapter 19 is the first time the word hallelujah appears in the entire Word of God. There are 66 books that make up the Holy Bible, the canon of Scripture. And it is in the 66th book in the 19th chapter near the very end of the 66th book that the word hallelujah is first mentioned. And that's significant. Because hallelujah is a word that we're very familiar with as Christian people. But isn't it interesting that it's not used throughout the Word of God? It's first used here. So this is the biblical hallelujah chorus. And what we see in this chapter is that worship in heaven is indescribable. There are no languages on the face of the earth that can adequately describe worship in heaven. The word hallelujah is commonly used today among we Christians. And I think because of this, we minimize the understanding, maybe not intentionally, but we do subconsciously minimize the importance of this word. It is the word in Hebrew which means praise Jah. Praise Jehovah. Praise Jehovah. Now what is the context 
in which praise Jehovah is used. This is the first time it's used in the entire Bible. So what is the context in which the word is used? It is used to describe the heavenly multitude praising the Lord for destroying evil. Because you see, context matters. Amen. Context matters. Now I know we use the word hallelujah. So how was your week, brother? I had a blessed week. Well, hallelujah, praise the Lord. I guess that's okay. But the reality of the situation is when it is first used in the Bible, it is praising God for destroying evil. That's, right. that's the actual context of the use of the word. And that's why I ask the question, do we really understand the wrath of God? The character of God? Because if someone were to say, to you or to I, or to those of you watching on live stream, God has judged evil here or there, would our response be, Hallelujah, praise the Lord. Because that's what the heavenly host is doing here. They are praising God for destroying evil. So knowing this, I think we need to look briefly, but, but carefully, at the four hallelujahs contained in these nine verses. So here we go. The first hallelujah, if you're taking notes. The first hallelujah is rejoicing in the judgments of God. Rejoicing in the judgments of God. We see this in verses 1 and 2. It is a celebration of the righteousness of God's judgment. Meaning that God's judgments are always true and just. No one can accuse God of being unfair. Amen. No one can accuse God of being unjust. Everything God does is right Amen. and good because He is without sin. Amen. And what we see in this first hallelujah chorus, if you will, are the heavenly saints celebrating the righteousness, the justness, the goodness of God's just judgment. The vengeance of God is pure and it is deserved. And so this hallelujah sounds forth because the plea now of those martyred saints that we saw in chapter 6 verse 10 has been answered. So let's go all the way back to Revelation chapter 6 verse 10 where you have the martyred saints of God around the throne of God and they are pleading with God. And what is their plea? Oh, sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? So here are the martyred children of God around the throne of God crying out for God to avenge their blood on those who dwell on the earth
That plea is answered here in chapter 19, verses 1 and 2. God has avenged those martyrs. Justice has been sent and it is done. The second hallelujah chorus is God's judgment is final. God's judgment is final. Look at verse 3. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. God's judgment is final. The smoke rising up from the ruins of Babylon is evidence that Babylon has fallen and never shall rise again. She was ruined. Doom has come upon her and she cannot and she will not ever rise from the ashes as a phoenix. Babylon is obliterated. Never to be feared by the people of God again. <clears throat> the third hallelujah. Verse 4. Worship that is truly worship is always God-centered. That's the third hallelujah chorus. Worship that is truly worship is always God-centered. Look at verse 4. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah. Well, this Hallelujah is sung by the 24 elders and the four living creatures alone. And this tells us something. And these 24 elders are symbolic they represent two separate groups. Twelve of them represent the twelve tribes of Israel. And twelve of them represent the twelve apostles. And this is significant. Why? Because collectively they represent the entire saved body of God's people in both the Old and the New Testaments. This is why twelve of them represent the, the twelve tribes of Israel. And twelve of them represent the twelve apostles from the New Testament. So what is in view here in these 24 elders singing, worshiping God alone is the church universal through all ages of time. Those who were saved in Old Testament times looking forward to the Messiah and those of us living now who are in Christ looking back to the Messiah it's the entire body of Christ represented here. Worshiping God alone. And what is their worship solely centered on? God. God alone. There is not one word in their worship that speaks of I or me or us. He alone is the focus. His holy character is praised. Did you hear that? His holy character is praised and rejoiced over. In verse 4. And this is our constant reminder that God has not changed. Amen. And that the worship of God's people is not truly worship unless God is the central focus. Unless He is the focus. Right. 
of it. But do we not understand here that this is the entire body of Christ universal rejoicing over the fact that God is good and He's right and He's just in all of His ways, in everything He does, including judgment. Now powerfully, a voice rings out in verse 5. It's the voice of Jesus, the risen Christ. Listen to verse 5. Praise our God, all you His servants, you who fear Him, small and great. Praise Him and Him alone. Reverence Him and Him alone. This is the call of the Lamb Himself for the children of God to worship God. And there is a fourth hallelujah in verses 6-8. through eight, And it is the wedding banquet of the Lamb. You know, we've been waiting a long time in the book of Revelation to finally come to the place where we are encounter the wedding banquet of the Lamb. Well, here's our first encounter. Look at verses 6 through 8. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And this is the fourth hallelujah we're looking at today. The wedding banquet of the Lamb. So here we are at this place in Revelation and the marriage banquet is upon us. Christ and His bride, the church, are to be married. In other words, united. Do you know how long the people of God have been waiting for this? Do you know how many of the Old Testament saints of God, how long they've been waiting for this day? At least 6,000 years. They have not yet been made perfect. Yes, in spirit, they are in heaven worshiping the Lord. But they have not received the final consummation of salvation, which is the reunification of their spirit with a glorified body. And they cannot experience nor enjoy that until the last child of God is brought into relationship with Christ and He comes to take all of His children home. And then shall we all be changed in the moment in the twinkling of an eye. But until then, they wait. And they worship in heaven and they cry out from heaven. How long, O Lord, before you judge and bring your bride unto yourself? So here we are. In verse 7, the bride is told to make herself ready for her groom. 
And there's this important reality in verse 8. Look at it. It says, it was granted her, that is the church, the bride, it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. This ought to cause the church of the living God to burst forth in loud praise. Right here, right now. If we understand the words of Scripture, it was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. And why do I say that the church ought to burst forth in loud praise? It's because we have no righteousness of our own. That's right. The text is clear. Our righteousness, if we are in Christ, has been granted to us. We didn't earn it. We certainly don't deserve it. Amen. We are not worthy Amen. to be counted among the number who know Christ. None of us are. We are sinners by nature. We deserve the eternal wrath of God. Every single one of us. But if we are in Christ, it's because we've been granted to clothe ourselves with fine linen, bright and pure. It's not something we can earn. It's not something we could ever deserve. If we are considered just in the sight of God, it is because we are justified by faith alone, in Christ alone, because of His work on the cross alone. Amen. But isn't it interesting? This text is clear. It lets us know that faith that justifies is never alone. Well, I guess that just slams the door on easy believism, doesn't it? Because look at the end of verse 8. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Faith that saves is never alone. Faith which justifies the soul is never alone. You see, this whole idea in seeker-sensitive America, right? Where we certainly don't want anyone to be offended by anything that's said from the pulpit. Well, my goodness, I'd have to kick out about 99% of the Bible. Because the Word of God offends the flesh. I ought to know. Because I remember when it offended me every time I heard it. And even now, I have to be careful. When I'm studying to preach the Word, I'll go, ooh-wee. That hit real close. Because you see, we still live in a body of flesh, right? And by the way, this is why church on a couch will never equal church with the body. Do you remember the Last Supper? I'm in great shape. Don't, don't be looking at no watch. I got one. I can see what time it is. I don't care. 
Let me tell you what Alan does. When I start getting pretty close to about that 30 minute mark, I hear him over there. Like he's like he doesn't have a toothpick and he needs one or something. I know what he's doing. I'm just playing. Hmm. You remember at the Last Supper, Jesus said, listen, if I've washed you, you're all clean. And he says, but not all of you are clean because he knew who was going to betray him. So he says on the one hand, you have no need that I wash you because you're all clean. But then he says, I'm going to wash your feet. And if I don't wash your feet, you have no part with me. That seems very contradictory, but it's not. Now, can you imagine living in Palestine, ancient Palestine, and walking those dusty roads, walking through those deserts with those sandals on? What would happen to your feet? They would get filthy. It's hot over there. I've been over there. It's hot. And you go to sweating, and then that dust is all... I mean, your feet get absolutely filthy. Yeah, I mean, but black with dirt. So they would. the servant of the household would wash the feet of guests when they came in. Right? So what is Jesus teaching us there? You and I still walk through this world every single day. We come in here so that the Word of God, preached rightly and truthfully, can cleanse us, will cleanse us. And we're together. We're all in this together. We all live in the same world. We all have the same struggles. They may look a little different, but we all live in this world of woe. We're all just passing through. This is not our home. This is a tough place to live if we're truly Christian people. If we're living for Jesus and speaking the truth, this is a tough place to live our lives. We cannot live them alone. We need one another. The body needs one another. We're all members of one body. We need to be encouraging one another with our words in psalms and with hymns and with spiritual songs, speaking to one another in that way, building one another up in Bible study classes, being discipled, learning the truth deeply so that we understand who God is, what His character is, what we have to look forward to. We need one another here. Collectively gathered. Amen. Amen. You can't get it on a couch. I understand some people have to do that from time to time. But we shouldn't use that as an excuse. Because it's not right. And it's detrimental. It just is. The Word washes our feet so that we can go back out into this world. Because we're not of the world, but we live in the world. And we are a people on a mission to spread the good news of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And part of that good news is Jesus is gracious, He's merciful, and He saves. He is a loving, gentle Savior. But part of that Gospel is bad news. Repent and believe or face the judgment of God. And we need to be sharing this truth in love, but we need to be sharing it. But the only way we can be equipped to do it is when we come together to have our feet cleansed by the washing of the water of the Word. 
to be prepared with the Word, to be encouraged by one another. And that's what I'm getting at right here. Our righteousness, if we're in Christ, has been granted to us. We didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it. But righteousness that is imputed is never alone. Faith that justifies is never alone. It is accompanied by works in keeping with salvation. That is the fruit of salvation. We are, we are those who have been rescued from destruction. We are those, if we are in Christ, who have been plucked from the fire. We are those, if we are in Christ, who are those, we are those who have been cleansed and dressed by Christ Himself for the marriage banquet. Jesus' entire ministry on earth rightly understood, was to prepare His bride for Himself. Did you hear that? If someone asks you, as simply as possible, explain to me, why did Jesus come to earth? You can tell them, to prepare for Himself a bride suitable for Him. And the only way He could do it was to shed His sinless blood to wash away the sins of those who would trust Him that they might be able to wear white, bright, fine linen fit for the Prince of Peace. Now, I close with these words. I sat and thought about this quite a while as I was preparing to close out uh, the text this morning in the, the sermon text. And that is this thought. What an indescribable blessing it is to be invited by Jesus to His marriage feast. as a part of His bride. Knowing that I didn't earn it and I surely didn't deserve it. Knowing that I deserve to be destroyed along with Babylon and everyone else who worships Babylon. That's what I deserve. And I didn't do anything, anything whatsoever to earn or deserve the favor of God that Jesus might come here and die for me personally. How about you? What an indescribable thought that is. And so right now, when we leave here today, child of God, know this, that right now, our lives are still now and not yet. We live for Him we serve Him and we wait for Him. Right now, we live for Him. And we serve Him. 
We lay down our lives in service here for Him and His glory. But we are also waiting for Him. And that is not yet. Hasn't happened yet. But someday, in time, and it may be sooner than we think, we will no longer be in the now and not yet. If we are in Christ in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, it will only be now. With Christ in glory. Ages without end. May God help us to better understand 